0: Good morning. morning. The first scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 to 14. This is a story where Jesus encounters uh, the Samaritan woman at the well and they have a conversation. So listen for the word of God. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near this plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The second text is also from the Gospel of John. It's from chapter 14, verses 1 to 10. And here Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is at the end of his ministry before he heads into Jerusalem. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am also. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know the way where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. The words of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Gracious and holy God, you who created the heavens and the earth and all things through nothing but your own word, you who give light and life to all of us, the living, send your Holy Spirit amongst us that she she may guide us in all wisdom and show us the truth found in these scriptures. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. I grew up an atheist, but that doesn't mean that I, did, that I grew up without church. My family uh, was part of the United Church of Christ of Cedar Hills, just outside of Portland, Oregon. I converted, though, to the Christian faith through a youth organization called Young Life and then began going to a youth group at Valley Presbyterian Church. Within weeks of joining that youth group, I met a man, one of the youth directors, who changed my life. He showed me what it looked like to have Jesus live inside of you and the joy that that brings. He showed me what it means to be a Christian. His name was Ben Clanton, and he was an intern here at Trinity Press in the early 1980s. And his medallion is out on your patio. Ben showed me the life that Jesus brought. And it was life overflowing. If any of you knew him, he was an exuberant man that life bubbled out of. Like with the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus had something to offer me and those around me. Life. Ben and the other leaders at Valley and the leaders at Young Life talked constantly about Jesus. But they did not talk about other world religions. When I was a sophomore in college, I went on an abroad program with a professor of sociology and religion and 20 other students to nine different countries in Southeast and South Asia. We studied the relationship between religion and culture in each one of those countries. After we had been to Fiji and Indonesia and Sri Lanka and Thailand, we spent a month in India. And I remember that I found myself having a strange feeling by that time when I was in India. And I cupped my hands metaphorically and thought, what am I holding in my hands? What is this treasure that I found at 15, this religion, this this Jesus? What am I holding and what, uh, what am I holding when I am surrounded by at that time were 560 million Hindus. Who is this Jesus and what does he mean? Now I repeated that experience when I spent a month in Sri Lanka at a Buddhist monastery in a country surrounded by 12 million Buddhists. I had been taught by Ben and by my Presbyterian pastors that Jesus had life, that he was the way to abundant life, Was he the only way? How could that be when I was surrounded by hundreds of millions of people who had never heard of him? People who practiced other ways toward the ultimate principle, whatever that may be. I came home from the trip. Ben couldn't help me with my questioning, and neither could my Presbyterian pastors. There are two simple ways to solve this question of whether Jesus is the only way or not. The first way is straightforward, and it's the way of 2,000 years' worth of Christian tradition. Jesus is the only way to God. The other ways are false. They're dead ends, while Jesus is a portal and a road that leads to life abundant. Certainly, that sounds like what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman at the well Jesus is the one who offers her a spring of water that, if she drinks of it, she will never be thirsty again. He is also the one who tells his lost and confused disciples I am the way. I am the truth itself. I am life itself. I can take you to God the the Father, and only I can. Now, the second way is also straightforward. It wonders not just about the 2,000 years' worth of Christian tradition, but also about the 5,000 years' worth of Hindu tradition and the 2,400 years' worth of Buddhist tradition. It wonders about the 560 million Hindus in India and the 12 million Buddhists in Sri Lanka. What do they have? What do they find when they go looking for God the Father with all their open hearts? The second way believes we all earnestly seek God and we all have access to God. There is one peak of the mountain that we all climb, but there are many roads up it, not just one way. In light of this belief, the gospel of John is just either wrong or worse. It is offensive, exclusivistic, intolerant, and it should be put aside. The problem I found with the second way was the same problem I found when I cut my hands in India. When I lived and studied the religions in their native context with the native people who who practiced those religions, I found that while there are similarities between all the religions, there are also profound differences. Elements of uniqueness and divergence. They aren't all the same, or at least I discovered I'm not even sure they're all climbing the same mountain. There is another way forward, a third way. One which, unlike the other two, is not simple. Not as simple as saying Jesus is the only way or all the roads are the same. This third way, surprisingly, is a solution to the question that is found in the Gospel of John. The very gospel that many find offensive and thus put aside is lacking in wisdom and in generosity. It turns out the gospel of John has a wisdom and a generosity that is startling. But as often happens, the truth of the gospel can only be seen when the gospel is seen in its historical context. Read it out of context and John will be misunderstood and so will the Jesus in that book. But when it's read in the context, then the light opens up. When Jesus says in John 14, as we read, I am the way, the truth, and the life, this statement is said as part of an in-house conversation. It is not Jesus or John the disciple speaking to Hindus or Buddhists. It's not even Christians talking to Jews. Instead, it's Jews speaking to other Jews about the way forward after a cataclysm had destroyed their faith. In 70 CE, the Romans who had sieged Jerusalem for four years conquered it and destroyed every single bit of it. They lit it on fire, they tore every stone apart, and nothing was left but rubble. And then they took the Jews and kicked them out of the Holy Land. In this context, they had destroyed not only the city and the Temple Mount, but also the temple itself, the temple with God who dwelt in it. So the author of John is writing as a Jewish Christian to other Jews in a city called Alexandria, which is, uh, at the time, it's at the uh, the mouth of the Nile where it meets the Mediterranean. And it was one of the two most uh, intellectual cosmopolitan centers uh, in the Mediterranean. It was also a center of Jewish thought and life. So the temple in Jerusalem, where the Jewish sacrifices and the Jewish cult had been the center of the Jewish life and faith, had been destroyed. And with it, the Holy of Holies, which was inside the temple, which the Jews believed Was the center of the world. It was the place where heaven and earth met, and the God of heaven and all things descended and dwelt on earth in this spot. This is where God the Mother Father comes down and dwells with God's people. If you were ill, it was the place that you went to find healing. If you were confused or lost, it was the place you went to find direction. But after 70 CE and what the Romans did, where were the Jews to go now that there was no temple, no center of the earth, no place where God dwelled? The Jews of the Mediterranean, including Alexandria, were debating what's the way forward. And one group of Jewish leaders advocating putting the idea of the temple aside And they argued for highlighting those elements of the Jewish law and practice which kept the Jews distinct from the Gentile neighbors. They were some of the Pharisees and Jewish learned leaders, the rabbis, and this branch became Rabbinic Judaism, which is the kind we know today. There was a second group of Jews, however, who argued that the temple was not gone, it had simply been moved. God had moved it out of a stone building and into a temple of flesh and blood, of emotions and hands and feet. A person, a human being, Jesus from Nazareth. As the Gospel of John says over and over, Jesus himself was the new temple. And in his ministry in the Gospel, going back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee, what was Jesus offering? Why was John saying that Jesus was the way, the truth, the life, the drink of living water which would quench you always, the bread that satisfies? Why him? It was not because he was the height of revelation, nor because he was the son of God. Though he was both, John makes that clear. Rather, for John, it was for two other reasons. That John says Jesus is the one who gets us to the abundant life. The incarnation and the restoration in him of life to its original purpose. As the prologue of John makes clear, Jesus is the eternal logos, the word made flesh. Jesus is Sophia, the eternal wisdom of God, made flesh. He is the light which illumined the first day of creation but now in human form with hands and feet. It is an offensive idea and all the religions, Christianity included, run from it because it is certainly scandalous. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth, John says in 1.14. How can the creator of all things Become one of the creatures? How can that lofty idea of the Logos, of wisdom, which is spread everywhere, become one thing in time and space? And from Nazareth, which for the Jews and the Romans was actually nowhere. The Logos that made the world still dwelt with humans in this world, but now not in a building, but in flesh and blood, a person. And so the Jewish Christians in Alexandria pleaded to their Jewish brethren, we still have access to God through a temple. The temple is a person. Now along with the incarnation, John also argues for restoration. The good news is not only that God dwells with us, Emmanuel, it is also that this God has overturned the forces of sin and death and destruction and return the world to its originally intended beauty and wholeness. And again, God did not do it in a building, but in a person. In this person in whom wisdom resides, in whom the life that gave birth to all living things in the beginning also resides. It is why he offers a Samaritan woman living water, and tells his disciples that the life and joy that he has... He wants to give to them. It is particular. There's no doubt about it. All the wisdom and life condensed to a point in space and time. It's particular, but it's not exclusive, it's inclusive. Particular and inclusive, those two do not conflict with one another, at least in this gospel story. They go together. The gospel of John will be misunderstood uh, when it is seen as being exclusive, because it's not. Jesus is the new temple in which God the mother-father dwells. Jesus is light, but he does not mean and never meant to keep it to himself, As is clear in every scene of the gospel, Jesus intends to give it all away. God's intention was always to dwell in one creature, in one point, so that God could then spread from that one creature and one point and dwell in all the creatures in creation itself. In the Samaritan woman, and in those she tells, in the disciples and then those that they tell, in us, In those who see life in Jesus and crave it. And this life is available to everyone. Rich and poor, saint and sinner, pure and impure, Jew and Gentile. It is, as John 3.16 says, for the world. Inclusive. It is also inclusive. Because even though Jesus is the Logos in fleshed or the Wisdom in fleshed, and He is life itself at one point in space and time, He is the Logos, the Word, the Wisdom by which God created all things in the beginning, and which is suffused in all times and all places in every living thing. He is also the one in which the Spirit descended at His baptism. And dwells and remains in him. The same spirit he then breathes on the disciples and all of us. The spirit of God is in him. And so the same wisdom and logos and spirit that are in him. One point in space and time. Are always and have always been at work broadly. In every religion. In every culture. In every time and place. And what are they doing? They are attempting to move a broken world towards the restoration to life that God has always intended. They are intending to be the light of the world in all places and at all times because God never leaves God's self without a witness. And this is the one in whom Jesus depends. This God, the mother, father, the source of the logos, of the wisdom, of the light and life dwelling in him that he now spreads to the world. In the early 90s, uh, my wife is a Presbyterian pastor, and her first call was as an associate pastor at the United Presbyterian Church in Albany, Oregon. And uh, while we were there, she uh, she met a friend of hers named Steve Wilhelm. Steve did not like Christians, so at first he was quite skeptical of my wife, who was not only a Christian but a Presbyterian pastor. And Steve, he didn't like Christians. He especially apparently didn't like Baptists. But he, um, he, he was a practicing Buddhist. And so she met Steve when he was in his early 30s. And they struck up a friendship. And they have been friends ever since. And uh, Steve and I uh, struck up a friendship. Steve is an editor for a, a journal, for a magazine. And uh, quite a gifted writer. But his real heart is with his religion. He loves Buddhism. And um, so all through these decades, he has taken time to attempt to understand his Buddhist faith, to practice it. He has taken uh, sometimes six months at a time, he has saved up his vacation to go on a meditation retreat and uh, try and get closer to uh, what he considers uh, the truth and the way. What I have found is that when he and I get together we do talk about our faith. We talk about what we have found, things that we can't figure out, the difficulties of life, and how we hunger for wholeness. And through the years, Steve himself, he's picked up the Bible, he read the thing from Genesis to Revelation. He asks questions about Jesus. Um, he's curious about these Similarly, he's given me suggestions on uh, books on Buddhism. I've read them. I ask him questions. And what I found is that I'm a better Christian because I spend time and know Steve Wilhelm. And he said he's a better Buddhist. And that is what I mean when I say that with John, I can grasp this Jesus with everything in me because he has life for me. And I'm drinking that life and I want to spread it out. And at the same time, when I talk to Steve, I keep my ears open because that logos, that wisdom, that life and light has always been at work broadly in and through every religion, every culture, trying to bring the gospel to life, trying to bring the truth. And I listen to him for what he teaches me on mindfulness and patience and compassion and gentleness. And he listens to me tell this remarkable story about how all that compassion and gentleness became flesh 2,000 years ago. And that's the good news that Jesus offers us. So grab onto him and drink him in like the living water he, he offers the Samaritan woman and to us. And when he says, I know the way to God the Mother Father, I know the way to life. Follow him with all your heart and be glad and share that news with others. But listen too, because they may have truths, they may have light, they may have God in a way that we have yet to hear. Amen.